Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion people, and food production will need to grow by 70%. Farmers are working with IBM and Watson to help increase their crop yields. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart. Today's show is brought to you by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. Content industry is constantly evolving. To keep up, you need a tool that's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everybody on the same page. Airtable has been used by companies like Time Magazine, Group 9 Media, and BuzzFeed Motion Pictures. It lets you manage your entire creative process from ideation to content creation. Airtable empowers you to do your work your way. You can try it today. Just head to Airtable.com slash Recode Media to receive $50 in free credits. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here at Vox Media headquarters in New York City. I'm with Rex Sorgatz. Before I formally introduce him, I have one request for you, the Recode Media listener. Tell someone about this show. You know how to tell someone about this show, so I will not tell you how to tell someone about this show. Okay. That's, tweet that's it. My tweet ask. it. Tweet it. You can tell someone in person. You can email me and tell me you like the show. That's great. My ego always loves buffing, but it's better if you tell someone who's not me about the show. Even better. Welcome, Rex. Glad to be here. I'm going to tell everyone about it. Thank you, Rex. We're going to tell everyone about your book, which you are here to promote. We want to talk about other things as well. The book is called The Encyclopedia of Misinformation. It's got a very, very long, what we call in publishing, uh, a deck mm-hmm. subhead. Can you can you repeat this the deck by, by heart without looking? Uh, it's funny. My wife has actually memorized it. Yeah, but uh, you have not memorized I it. I do not. It is a compendium of imitations, spoofs, delusions, simulations, counterfeits, imposters, illusions, confabulations, skullduggery, fraud, pseudoscience, propaganda, hoaxes, flimflam, pranks, hornswoggle, conspiracies, and miscellaneous fakery. Or as I said on Twitter, this looks like something I can't wait to read on the toilet. Uh, and I, I meant that I in like, the most praiseworthy like way. nothing more than hearing that, that analogy. This is a book that is great. It's awesome. It also seems entirely superfluous. It seems like the kind of thing that exists already on the web. It seems like the kind of thing you do when you're avoiding working. You go and, especially in the older days, you screw around on the internet and you mm-hmm. end up in a weird Wikipedia hole and you end up on a weird YouTube channel and you just sort of entertain yourself in a specific sort of non-productive way. In this case... I'm just trying to I'm trying to sell people on the idea of the book, but there is a theme around here, right? It's mm-hmm. bite-sized nuggets about the idea of misinformation. Yes, yeah, it's it's definitely has like a wiki hole kind of quality to it, but the and it it tries to envelop and take on the role of a, an actual encyclopedia. It's organized A to Z. It has entries that are ten words to twelve hundred words, but. Once you get into it, you quickly realize that it's also trying to disrupt this idea of an encyclopedia. Um, it's not. There's, there are entries that are written as though they're straightforward descriptions of, say, crisis actors or false flag operations. But at the same time, you'll turn the page and all of a sudden there will be a chart about tribute bands. And so it's a real mixed mash of different kinds of ideas and all around ultimately getting to how does misinformation work in society? But using examples from pop culture, cognitive science. Uh, Rex, this is a fun thing to read for five, six, seven minutes at a time, right? That's yeah. how I would pitch it. Yeah, I think that you get down to the bottom of a— snackable you, content you read in a two, book. Yeah, you read, you read an entry and it takes you three minutes. And then there's a—at the bottom of each entry, there's a C also that you flip to that one and then you read that one. And— um, 
I guess, Peter, if you're off the toilet at that point, you yeah. can or you uh, stay put it down. Because sometimes you, keep, you, re- you stay you longer. You keep going. It's you, like, you got a groove. It's like that podcast you love so much you don't get out of the car. Yeah, or you listen to that podcast on the toilet or wherever you listen to fine podcasts. Yes. Why tackle the theme of misinformation? And, um, and just let me expand the question a little bit more. It is, a, it is, it is kind of the world, right? Like it's, it's just – you could just call it an encyclopedia. That's true. It is. Uh, it or is at least a, an encyclopedia of the internet. It is about everything in a way, which is part of the difficult task. Uh, it's. I. Th- I suspect we're going to see a lot of books coming out in the near future that are around the idea of disinformation, malinformation. I think those will all be very dry books and boring. And I started this before our current presidency. In fact, I was halfway done with it when um, we elected. Uh, some new guy into the office. And you can kind of see the tone transition throughout the book, and it starts off very playful and fun, um, not in like an A to Z way, but some entries are revel in the playfulness of culture, and other entries are much more serious and about uh, how the internet is tricking us. It is impossible not to read this thing and not think about Donald Trump on every other page, right? Because sometimes you're literally referencing him. Like you've got uh, one entry here is John Barron. yes who uh, then became John, what was the second one? Miller. John Miller, both of whom are Donald Trump on the phone, semi-disguising his voice and pretending to be his own spokesperson. Yes. Um, and then you've got false flag. Every, every article that you've read about misinformation on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook is all sort of baked into this, either explicitly or at least, or at least there's an allusion to it. Yeah. So Trump— I had a lot of discussions with my editor and publisher about how much Trump this should be. In fact, I think I've talked to other people in the book industry, and I, I, I think that's the big question right now is how much they should include that, both what they're buying new now and also kind of how much current books coming out should include it. I erred on the side of not including him very much. Um, I tend to think of him as a Zelig-like character. He pops up in weird places, especially in footnotes. Um, the most explicit place is that John Barron article. Yeah. Um, and like if I had to right, like, right. include that because that's every, just so insane. Right. Everything you read here, again, about false flag or is, do chemtrails make a – Yes. Of course. So, you know, whenever you see Susan Wojcicki from YouTube sort of stumbling around a stage on South by Southwest explaining that they want to have good news on YouTube, but they're not a news organization and their genius plan is to bring in Wikipedia Mm -hmm. when there's a a controversy like, what is a chemtrail? Is it real? It's all sort of around the idea of Trump plays a big part in it. Yeah, for sure. And there's a there's a good entry on um, Huey Long, the 1930s sure. uh, populist, and Trump isn't mentioned at all in the entry, and it's one of my favorite entries because it you can't read it and not think of him, and I do that a lot in the book where I don't say his name, and I it, the reader has to come to the conclusion that this is very relevant to our time and that get, history is rhyming. We didn't get nearly moment. enough Huey Long uh, references during the Trump campaign. People sort of came to it late. It's true. I went back and read all of the biographies and watched the movies, and th- he was a really important figure. And I, it's one of the pieces I'll probably excerpt somewhere out there. So you sent me this long, long pitch, which was in vain because I already told you that I was going to have you on to talk about the podcast. It worked. But you were listing all the awesome um, entries in here that we could talk about. Should I pick one at random and then you can riff on it? Or? Um, sure. I think I, that's the way I tell people to read the book is okay. sort of open it randomly. Well, that's definitely the way to do it. I was thinking we could actually do it with a book, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull from your—I'm your, going to give you a, a, a better shot here by pulling from the selections you, you selected. Uh, why are knockoff handbags relevant for this book? Uh, <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff kind of pulled from 
pop culture and commerce in the book. And there's a case where uh, right around the corner here is Canal Street. And you can go down there and buy um, a handbag that should normally cost, a Louis V that should cost $3,000 and buy it for $30. Not a new idea. We understand it. Yeah. And um, there's been some interesting research done that shows that um, that sounds like it's economic fraud and it's bad for the brand. The uh, I look at some studies, and a lot of this book is like going and looking at economic and psychological studies and going, oh, how can I condense this down to 300 words that are um, – good to digest and know about. But the studies show that, well, in fact, maybe it actually is beneficial for fake uh, knockoffs to exist in the marketplace for those brands. Because? And that, because in some cases, if it acts as an advertisement effectively, that if you see people walking around with that, that object, that it will spread its awareness and they'll, it'll make some people more likely to go out and buy that brand. There's also some research that says that people will kind of use it as a starter drug. Like they'll buy the knockoff mm-hmm. and then try it out. And if they like it, they'll elevate their drug experience to the next thing. It's, the a, pretty in- thing. it's a pretty interesting thing, right? Because especially for a luxury product, right? The, the idea is it should be something that's you really can't get, but you also want to make it... Re- it should be aspirational, but it also you need to put it within the reach of somebody, right? So that's why you have, and I'm gonna, I won't bother getting the brands because I'll screw it up, screw it up. But there's, you'll have a, a top brand, and then you'll have a, a lower brand that you could conceivably buy a seventy-five dollar t-shirt version of. Yes. Or, or Tiffany's had that silver heart locket that you could buy, even though you probably could not afford the the full blown Tiffany's ring mm-hmm. or whatever it was. Um, if I talk any more about fashion brands, we're just gonna, <laughs> I'm going to screw up, and everyone's going to shut the podcast off. Esperanto. Esperanto and George Soros. Why do why do we care about those two ideas? Oh, uh, that's a, a thing in the footnote. Uh, I hope this like book has like a a lot of data nuggets that people find interesting. But did you know that um, George Soros was? Oh, this would be a great case for me to speak Esperanto, but I don't remember the word. There's a word for native Esperanto. Denisculo. Denisculo. That's it. Um, and that is uh, it's in the book. Um, it is someone who born it was not born speaking it, but learns it as their native tongue. George Soros was actually a native speaker of Esperanto, and in fact, he emigrated uh, at an Esperanto conference. That's that was a, the the location at which he escaped the Eastern European uh, communist regime. These all these are all ideas that if you encounter them on the internet, mm-hmm. you would stop and if you had the time and go, I want to know more about that. And you yes. either Google or you'd press the link. Which you would have, you would have a hyperlink in there, um, and instead of it's it's a book. That's right. It so is. if you like the idea of that, and it's a cool novelty, you should go buy the Encyclopedia of Misinformation. If you hate books, don't buy this book. Yeah, I mean, it's I think of it as as close as you can get to an interactive book. I know people have lots of people have said that about what they're doing, but I tell people just open it up and move around through it, and then you'll find a thread and and it, it's not just facts. Like there are a lot of ideas and essays in there. Um, I want to be careful about the word essay um, because that sounds drab. I really am trying to explore what misinformation means. I want to ask you a, a dumb question about this book, but first, I'd like all of you to listen to this ad. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion people. So food production will need to grow by 70%. What if artificial intelligence could help? Good news, farmers are already using AI to help increase crop yields. They use Watson and the IBM Cloud, and they provide access to weather data, analyze satellite imagery to help them monitor soil moisture levels and reduce water waste. 
So as the population grows, more food can be put on tables. That's good. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart. Today's show is brought to you by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. Content industry is constantly evolving. To keep up, you need a tool that's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everybody on the same page. Airtable has been used by companies like Time Magazine, Group 9 Media, and BuzzFeed Motion Pictures. It lets you manage your entire creative process from ideation to content creation. Airtable empowers you to do your work your way. You can try it today. Just head to Airtable.com slash RecodeMedia to receive $50 in free credits. We're back here with Rex Sorgatz. Welcome back, Rex. Hello, hello. Hasn't some genius told you, hey, Rex, this is a great idea, but it shouldn't be a book. It should be an actual interactive thing. No, you're the first genius to tell me that. Um, yeah, I think that there's something still special about the book experience. You can get it on Kindle, too. But I think that the, uh, first of all, there's, a, there's obviously the physical quality, but the illustrations in it really are pretty cool. It's and super the charts, cool, but it's 2018. I should, this, this is something that I should be, I'm already going to be encountering this on the internet. This has, this is basically you trying to take the internet and put it into a book. Yeah, and the book is an idea that you will see in different forms in the future, hopefully. Um, I'm in negotiations with uh, video companies that you can probably guess who might turn this into a video Rhymes series. Netflix. Things that you might Amazon. guess. Amazon. And uh, also potentially a competing podcast. Um, But you can see that like it is a multimedia product potentially and I made it with the intention that um, I want to sprawl it off into different places. And at the end of it, there is the idea in the back of my mind that I open source it and then I just put it all on the internet and that it actually becomes an a. It actually becomes its, its own thing. wiki. Yes. I was thinking of another way to describe this this book. You know how when you look at a Wikipedia entry about something you're interested in, it's both fascinating and very frustrating because Wikipedia entries suck mm-hmm. because they've been written by a committee of people who actually want to spend time on Wikipedia. And, and they so take style out. Everything good and interesting about it has been taken out and replaced with some sort of weird agreed-upon facts, which yes. still aren't always correct. Well, this is like that, except Rex wrote it. Yeah. Not it, by committee. Yeah, it's not striving toward the middle. Like, as Wikipedia so much does. What are you doing when you're not writing an encyclopedia of the internet? Uh, well, I've been doing that for over two years. Uh, it took way longer than I thought it would. Um, and prior to that, I have been in digital consulting with media companies, primarily startups, helping them launch new products. Um, and over that time, I, I got rid of all clients but one while I was writing the book, and, uh, and I'm finalizing a product release for that one client still. And then occasionally you write cool and interesting things. Yeah, I've always written in the kind of in the background for the last 10, 15 years. I try to write one big thing a year is usually my goal. Um, and I've written for Wired and places, New York Magazine, places like that. And uh, I've never been a full-time writer. This is the f- first time in my life I've said this is what I'm going to do for the near term. And it was something of an experiment to see if I liked it. How do you, how do you, how do you like being a full-time like writer? You, the, the, the money or the work or both? The money part doesn't bother me. It's the— You're rich? Uh, yes. That Bitcoin paid off. Um, no, it's the—I'm not—some you know, some people really love to get into an idea, and they—most people have a hard time starting, but once they're in it, they really love it. I don't love much of the process. And I think the hard part for me is I've been working collaboratively with people 
um, on startups, on media companies, magazines, radio stations, all kinds of stuff in my life. And all of those things were collaborative. And this is the first thing where you sit down, you do it yourself alone. Yeah. You don't show anyone. Even your agent or your, your editor doesn't even really look at it until it's done. And it was really hard for me. My wife will tell you that I was home for, I sometimes didn't leave the house for a week. And um, and may not have showered some of that time too. And Sounds it like a was, writer. some people handle it the process better. If I did it over again, and if I do another one, I'll be better at it. I know how to do it now. But the first time, I I was a very I was a mess for two years. I was not good at it. Yeah, just write shorter than you than you than you can cycle through it more quickly. Just write blog posts. Well, this was kind of like writing yeah, blog exactly. posts. Like almost every entry was a day. Like I tried to do one a day, and I had a, a calculator that that I follow uh, an Excel spreadsheet that I had to follow to knock them off. Um, the problem is that each one requires not so much writing, but so much research. And my house is now full of all of these weird, terrible books that I had to read to to get through it. Um, so it's got a zodiac vibe. It's like I you know. Uh, there's an entry on uh, OJ's If I Did It, um, and I did not only read If I Did It, which, yeah. which is the, the book that hypo- hypothesized, mm-hmm. that OJ wrote that hypothesized. I'm not saying I did You don't want to go down the rabbit hole. Hypothetically, I did it. So I read the whole thing, and then I read all of the books about uh, and around that thing. Yeah, even just watching the Fox show makes you feel a little skeevy. Yeah, and I, that's a good example of something that happened since the book came out that I wish I could get in there because the, the, the actual interview came out and that was actually recorded back right, in the day. Right, which they just put out, which no one cared about. because No one cared. It now, was a huge deal back then. Because now we're in Trump. I want to ask you about an article you wrote a couple of years ago mm-hmm. that really struck me. Um, what's it called? It's, the premise is you're from North Dakota. You mm-hmm. makes you the second person I've ever met from North Dakota. The other Ooh. is Chuck Klosterman. Right. And you're from a tiny, tiny town even by North Dakota standards. Yes. And the premise is you go back to this tiny town. It is essentially unchanged. Same, same population, same economics, but the internet is now there. Yes. And your conclusion is what? Well, I treated it like a scientific experiment. It's a wired story. You should go read it. Yeah. And it, um, the title is Netflix and Chill, which totally dates it. It's a terrible wow. thing. I mean, it's my fault, too. The editor tried to talk me out of, the, out of it. Um, uh, Wait, when I saw it, when I was Googling for you, it said, the internet has changed everything. Yeah, Here's they, why. I think, well, they moved, it was on back channel, then it moved to wired, and I think they actually they thought changed better it. of it, yeah. They, they, they over wisely overruled my stupid It's title. a very magazine headline. Listen to your editors, people. <laughs> but that, that is a classic example. This is where we're down a rabbit hole here. But Netflix and chill for a story about it going to a cold place yes. and talking about the internet um, is the kind of headline that a magazine editor yes. and newspaper editor puts on because puns are, mm-hmm. are praised there and also the idea that it would probably be splayed out against a, a photograph of someone being cold. Yes. In fact, and, that, and that makes sense in a magazine world, and on the internet, that headline doesn't work at all. That's right. In fact, even on the covers, what you might do, the cover line is what they're called on the yeah. covers of magazines. Um, yeah, so it was a story that um, I went back to my hometown, um, which I don't really see that often, and, uh, you know, 20-plus years later, and I tried to treat it as a scientific experiment, and the premise was that everything about this place has stayed exactly the same. The The main street has the same grocery store. It has the same cafe, um, the same bank. That's that's the entire business economy of, of the town. The people 
are unmiraculously are miraculously similar to a, as what they had been when I was there. The population is still about the same. It still graduates twenty people a year from high school. My class was twenty seven. I think it's twenty two this year. Um, and so the thesis was that everything here is equal, except one thing has changed, and that's technology. And so I try to study. Have people changed because technology has been introduced into the environment? And the conclusion is? The conclusion is, um, I don't want to be the person that draws huge conclusions. Although there is a headline that says the internet has changed everything. Yes. So I did find that kids really did think differently than what I did. I think about this all the time Mm -hmm. because I've got kids now, I'm watching them. But I think about what my life would have been like if I had access to some version of the internet Growing up, and I, I, I came from Minnesota where we had mm-hmm. cable TV and stoplights. But still, if, if you wanted to encounter anything sort of beyond the Minneapolis Star Tribune or the New York Times, maybe you could do a deep dive in the library. But really, it was you were pretty cut off from most things unless yeah. it came through the TV. Yeah, my access to media was um, there's three magazines in the library: Time, Newsweek, and Sports Illustrated, and. That, and there was the daily paper was the Bismarck Tribune, which was always a day late. And that was it. We had network TV. Yeah. Um, we, we didn't have cable. Um, I didn't get PBS. I didn't get Sesame Street until I was 13. Too old to appreciate Sesame Street. That's how remote it was. And um, now, of course, kids can open up their phone and hear the history of recorded music instantly. And I think up until a couple years ago, I think most people, people like you and me, for instance, would say, well, that's great. It's good that those kids all have access to the the world. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in early-ish 2018, um, there seems to be more and more, hey, maybe there should be less internet and specifically social media, but less internet and less screens in, in, in all of our lives and especially can't be good for kids. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you, where do you, how do you feel about that when you go back and visit Rexville? What, what's the name of the town? <laughs> Napoleon. Napoleon. It has like a heroic name to it. Right? I like Rexville. Um, I mean, we grew up in an age of like scarcity for some of the stuff that, uh, you know, the example I always give is I, I never heard the Pixies until college. I never heard the Smiths or the Cure. I never, not only never heard of them, I never heard of them. And not only never heard of them, I never could have heard of them. Right. There would but, be nothing but, that would have brought them I will them say, to right, like there was plenty of kids I went to college with who had never heard of the Pixies and probably graduated and didn't know who the Pixies were, right? Because the, sure. the idea, it was still very monoculture-y. And, mm-hmm. and if someone didn't bring show you a CD with the Pixies on it, you probably wouldn't be exposed to it. So it wasn't yeah. that different. Yeah, and so that that's and that opens up the question is are these kids today do they listen to the Pixies now that they have access to it? And the answer is nope, not really. It's still like I, there's a lot of time spent asking the question about music because I think that's a that's a particularly good phenomena to to study. Um primarily because pop music is such a kid medium more than anyone else. If ki- if kids like it that means it's good practically. And um I asked questions about, do you know the Beatles, which was really funny because they had no interest in it. And it turns out they still basically listen to metal and country, which were the things that I listened to. Um, I talked to uh, two kids primarily, one uh, one a young girl and a, one boy, or teenage girl and boy. And they the boy in particular was like still listening to the same ACDC songs that I listened to growing up. And rap. Rap was thrown in there too. That was the new thing. Do you think that the relative isolation, well, it's very isolated, right? This town is very isolated. It's, it's in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that that makes it harder for the internet to break through? It seems like, um, I don't know, it could go either way. 
Um, because I think I don't think that if you went to another town um, and revisited it 25 years that later, that the culture that the, that people would still only be listening to metal and country. I think it would have diversified to some degree. My hunch is that the internet would have would have expanded some young minds more than than the minds that you're visiting. Expand is the wrong word. That 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 I, I think that there's something. This is not a very fruitful discussion because I can't really articulate what I'm saying. But it seems like um, you would expect people to be trying out other kinds of culture and music just because it's being put in front of them. Right. Does access equal um, taste or, or opportunity? And from what I saw, mostly no, it doesn't. That there that culture overrides abundance. That there's still a um, a tendency toward kind of tribalism of the community and and also being very, very, very uh, careful with outsiders. Um, I had brought a photographer with me and brought him to the cafe and they kind of knew who I was and um, they would always say, are you Dave Sargatz's boy? Like they knew, yeah. that's the way they talk there is that you're always someone's son. Um, but they were very suspicious of the photographer. And I think that, that information is treated in much the same way. I think that they... Snapchat is not something that's really huge with the kids there. Um, it's used, but mostly by edgier kids. And the girl I spoke to, her parents wouldn't let her use Facebook. This has been another episode of two middle-aged white guys talking about <laughs> young people using <laughs> what the, the internet. Do. Um, and if you like that, there's more where that came from. But hang on, we've got to hear from a fine advertiser. Today's show is brought to you by Namely, which we use at Vox Media for real. It's true. When was the last time you checked your pay stub or picked benefits at work? Chances are it wasn't easy. HR software has been clunky and hard to use ever since HR has been a thing, which is forever. One technology company takes a different approach. Namely is the only all-in-one HR, payroll, and benefit software employees love to use. You want to clock in? Easy. You want to write a performance review? Easy. You want to schedule some vacation time? Namely makes it easy to do. You can do it from your phone. There's a social news feed like Facebook without all the bad parts, where employees can share updates, celebrate birthdays, and give shout-outs for a job well done. Namely, doesn't just make work easier, it actually makes it a little more fun, too. Over 1,000 companies use Namely every day. Vox Media is one of those companies. If you're in HR or if you run your own business, it's time to see Namely in action. You can get a free demo by visiting namely.com slash Kafka. One more time, that's namely, N-A-M-E-L-Y dot com slash Kafka. See how you can build a better workplace with Namely. And we're back with Rex Sorgatz. I want to keep going down this rabbit hole. I like saying rabbit hole. Um, because I like to ask lots of people about how they imagine their professional life would be different without the internet. And they're usually not that interested in, in having that conversation. They don't think about it a lot. But it seems like in your case, the internet was very important to you because you've made your living doing it. For the last how many years? A couple decades. Yes. So you grew up in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. You live in New York now. Mm -hmm. How did you get from North Dakota to New York? Uh, so after leaving uh, my little tiny town of Napoleon, I moved as far away as I possibly could, or at least in my mind, and that was to Grand Forks, North Dakota, where I went to college at the University of North Dakota. Uh, I didn't know anyone who had gone to— It's nearish to Fargo, right? Yeah, it's an hour north of Fargo and near the Canadian border. And uh, that literally is as far as I could, my brain could go for as distance. Um, I didn't know anyone who went to any 
college whatsoever, not Harvard, much less the University of Minnesota. University of Minnesota was an impossible idea. I wouldn't even have thought of the yeah, idea I felt, to go there. Growing up in Minnesota, I felt that way about New York. Yeah. Chicago was the big city. Yeah. I think everyone puts a, a, a place in their head that's one above where they are. And for me, that was getting to UND was the, was the big thing. And uh, I, I, st- I stayed in college for uh, quite a long time because I loved it. And I felt like I just discovered all of the information in the world and um, got a few too many degrees there. Um, but while I was there, uh, started became the editor of the college newspaper, uh, fell into media by accident, um, got into the internet by going down to the computer lab and meeting some kids in trench coats who were playing computer games. And I thought, these kids are the creepiest people in the world, and I never want to hang out with them. And then by the end of the week, they were my best friends. And uh, started working out of college at the Daily Paper, um, the Grand Forks Herald. And tragedy struck while I was there. Um, This was 1996, 97. And the biggest uh, natural disaster of the 20th century hit the Red River Valley, and this is a, it's a story that most people have forgotten. It was during the Clinton administration that there was a gigantic flood. I remember. The f- and the flood took down um, all of downtown, six feet of water under, and 50,000 people evacuated. The largest evacuation of an American city in the 20th century. There's a stat. Um, that little flood uh, further south in Louisiana was the next century. Um, and in the middle of the flood, a fire started, and... It raged through downtown, knocking down lots of buildings, and they couldn't put it out because the fire hydrants were underwater. And the town slowly burned without being able to put out this fire, and it was this great irony that you couldn't put it out. Well, we kept putting out the paper um, somewhat miraculously, uh, even though the printing press was underwater. Our fellow Knight Ritter publication, there's a name from the past, which was in St. Paul, the Pioneer Press, no longer owned by Knight Ritter. Knight Ritter no longer exists. Um, they printed the press and brought it into town for us. And uh, long story, trying to make short. Uh, we Your were newspaper polar- was destroyed by by God, not yes. by Craigslist and Google. Yes, and the the title on the daily the, the day after was Come Hell or High Water, uh, and the paper won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, I was running the website, and it got some special notation, and that was my ticket. Um, my house also burned down. I lost everything I owned, and I was in my early 20s and had nothing and decided to move to Minneapolis because finally something bad had happened to me. I had owned nothing, and I had notoriety as a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. And then you knock around in Minneapolis doing Internet stuff. This is the first wave of, of the web bubble mm-hmm. where anyone— um, who's remotely competent and could like turn on a computer and or build a website and or yep. publish something, could find work, and that worked out well for you? Yeah. Uh, I banged around doing a couple magazines and um, that were about the web uh, and then landed at a company called Internet Broadcasting Systems. Still around. It, it, it's changed its name, actually. Because uh, IBS look, is a terrible name. It's a terrible yeah. name. Terrible name. But they pretty basically made websites for uh, other media companies, particularly... TV stations. Yeah. So they did all of the... Still what they do. Yeah, they did all of the NBC, I don't know, it was all the Washington Post TV stations, um, 
uh, Hearst Cox TV, Cox TV stations. Basically, if you had a local TV station you in a market, it was pretty likely IBS. This is one of the things I think rant. about a lot, right? So if you have access to the internet and you are in North Dakota or you're in Minneapolis and you're an ambitious and interesting and smart young person, um, do you? why do you move to New York, right? And I asked that question 20 years ago because that's what you did. It's what I did eventually. And then I asked that question sort of, Do is there a point to moving to New York or Los Angeles or some metro, metropolitan area like that? Or if you're good at it and you've got access to the internet, do you have to leave that that part of – wherever you are, you have to leave to, to get better or get more success or, or make more money? Yeah, when I was coming up, I would say the answer is you don't have to leave. And I think that's why it took me quite a while to get to New York. We'll skip ahead. I went to Minneapolis there for a while, then to Seattle on, where I worked at MSNBC.com and then eventually to New York. And that was only 10 years ago I got to New York. And um, it, if it was still – if things were like they are were back then now, I could still live in Minneapolis. And in fact, I would like to. Um, but the local news market has been completely decimated. Um, there used to be magazines there, like the Utney Reader was there. And there was an actual like vibrant media culture there. Uh, three successful TV stations, two daily newspapers, three magazines. Like there was a real vibrant media community of, of people hanging out. Minnesota Public Radio is based there. So that now... I mean, I know I'll have friends from Minneapolis who hear this, but it's it's much more bleak now. And I I think it's much, much more likely that you're going to have to get out if you want to get it. I've been hearing from years from smart people saying, oh, you know, one of the things the Internet's going to do and also tiny planes and other, or it's going to allow everyone to do work from wherever and you don't have to move to New York. You don't have to move to San Francisco if you want to do whatever kind of knowledge. Um, and Fox Media has a big distributed workforce. Lots of people work from lots of places in the, uh, around the country. Um, but if we went next door, we'd find most, at least half of the Vox Media workforce is in New York City. Um, and it's interesting, right, that there's still, I guess you're even saying even more so, sort of a concentration of information workers in cities like this. Yeah. I mean, Which doesn't sure. make any sense because the real estate hasn't gotten any cheaper. It's gotten much more expensive. Yeah, and there's just been a, a massive shift from local news to national news. And for every... Vox that pops up, and we can look at that as a um, uh, a positive rise in media culture because more is always better. There's a a Cleveland Plain Dealer on the fall, and uh, I, and I there's nothing to indicate that that's going to change anytime soon. No, not even Lorraine Powell Jobs can save all the local newspapers. Well, that's pretty much the plan right now is, is hope billionaires show up and save your newspaper, which they did in Minneapolis. We can we can spend a lot of time talking about the Midwest, but. No one wants to hear that much. You moved to New York. You became, weirdly, briefly, an internet celebrity. <laughs> Micro-celebrity. Um, you became the object of Nick Denton's fascination. Mm -hmm. This is when Gawker was still writing about sort of New York media as its main idea. Mm -hmm. So you can go Google this. You can go, it shows up in your first, first, first page it. of results. What was it like to be written about, not just by Gawker, right, but by Nick Denton? He wrote a profile of you called Rex Sorgatz. Was it Posse? Is that the full name of the title? I think so. Yeah. This is literally about you and your love life and what you're doing in, in the Hamptons with other youngish people. Seems both exhilarating and terrifying. Those would be the two good words. I guess I would be lying if I said that there wasn't some kind of excitement around that era. Um, and it wasn't just personal. It was like there are all of these companies coming up uh, in New York, and there was it, New York was going through its dot com boom at that moment. This is two thousand seven ish. Yes, yeah. And so there was um, Tumblr and BuzzFeed and Foursquare and HuffPo and youth culture. 
around that. And so it was really exciting. Media people were entrepreneurs. This was a new idea. You could you could start a blog and you could sell it or at least make a bunch of money uh, with ads or some money off of ads or pretend you made some money off of ads or some version of that. And you could play on the internet without really knowing anything about technology. Yeah, start up WordPress and you you, you got a company. and uh, Or just like learn some programming and hire a developer and you have an app and you check into places and all of a sudden it's a... $300 million company, right? So that was all really exciting. I would say that the, the it was a vibe more than anything else. There were just people that um, were all hanging out with each other. And it was still the days of the party photographer. Like you'd go out to places and people would take pictures of you. Thankfully, I, I don't go to those parties anymore, so I don't know. But I think that era has died. I don't think that that happens. But at least for the nobodies, like it happened for people that were nobodies were getting pictures taken of them and it's gone back to just being uh, a paparazzi culture. And so I guess all of that was fun. Um, I have nothing but regret and remorse and shame when I look back on it. But uh, it was it was undeniably exciting and I think that um, it was fun to fall into something. Because again, if you, if you grew up in North Dakota or mm-hmm. Minnesota or any town, um, you may well have a fantasy at some point when you're a teenager or a tween or anything around that saying, it'd be cool to be famous. It'd be cool if people paid attention to me. Um, I don't know how I would accomplish that, but that'd be cool. Um, and then fast forward not that many years later, and not only is Nick Denton writing about you, there's a New York Times style section profile about mm-hmm. you. It would seem um, both like, wow, I've, I've fulfilled my fantasy. And also, I don't know, this is a great idea. Yeah, there's no business there. Also like... I mean, New York Magazine asked early on in the process before those profiles were written. New York Magazine asked me to write a story called um, "How to Be Microfamous," and uh, I'm told it was the first time that it was a web only. It was the first web only feature. Uh, it was early enough that they're paying someone uh, a big magazine salary to write a web only feature. And got rid of that exactly, idea. Yeah, and that was a, that was exciting because. I had lots of opinions and thoughts about how fame worked, and it was one of my kind of intellectual obsessions. And I, it's really funny to look back on. I had no idea that I was writing this fake how-to. In some ways, I still like the form. I just wrote a fake encyclopedia in some capacity. I like kind of going into these forms and burrowing around in them and figuring out a new way to do them. So I wrote this fake how-to about how to become micro-famous. And I didn't realize the entire time that they kind of thought of my byline being an indicator of, like, I'm actually writing a how-to. I thought it was just like a joke piece that people would find funny and that they— and they had me rewrite the lead and tell a personal story about myself. And I realized at that point, oh, you think that I'm actually into this culture, whereas I only had like an intellectual appreciation of it. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, no, this the, uh, things are about to get out of control. Do you have any appreciation having gone through fame on a small scale? Very small, we But say. still, the New York Times writing about you, and people would write stories about the New York Times profile about you, and then they'd write stories about the stories about the New York Times profile. Very small world. Um, but still, you were a big deal in a small world. When, you, when you're when you looking out, we were talking before we started taping about the, the, the YouTube celebrities who are massively famous, mm-hmm. but also sort of in their own world, it's massively famous in a sort of cloistered level, right? Like lots of people know who Jake Paul is or Logan Paul is or both. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know either, right? You've got, you've got a world where you can be both tremendously famous and then unknown. 
depending on where you talk, depending on who you're talking to. Um, does that give you any insight into that world? Sure. I'm not sure this is anything new to say, but, uh, you know, no one is going to be talking about Logan Paul in 10 years. There's just no way that that's a lasting brand. And, uh, uh, and it, I'm I'm positive there's someone on the other end of this listening to this going, who's this guy? Yeah, what? That's he crazy. I've never heard. Uh, the vast majority of people are like, he was micro famous. What? And that's just. Uh, and when you're when you're caught in that moment, all that you're thinking is like, this is fun. That's all you're thinking. And then if you're the kind of person that gets hooked on it, which I definitely was not, because by the end I was like, just leave me alone. Um, stop bugging me. Um, but if you're the kind of person that gets hooked on it, then you might have some remorse that you long for that attention. Do you have any cool artifacts in that era, like a, a regrettable tattoo or, or some other trophy? Oh, I have stories, but I can't tell any of them. I, uh, That's the second book. Yeah. So what have we learned today? Uh, you should go by the Encyclopedia of Misinformation by Rex Sorgatz. You should not aspire to be micro-famous. True. Um, you should write a book about Trump without mentioning Trump Yep. too many times. And it's worth looking at books printed on paper in 2018. All good lessons. Did I miss anything? Golda? Golda says we covered it all. Rex, you're awesome. Thanks for joining us. That was fun. Thanks again, Rex. That was fun. Thanks to you guys for listening. Before we go, one more time, tell someone about the show. You know how to do that. You're smart. You're listening to Recode Media even as I speak right now. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits the show, and to my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. I am back next week. I will see you then. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. 16 million new-collar jobs will be created by 2024. To help fill them, IBM's new education model gives high school students workplace experience and an associate's degree. 90 P-TECH schools are already preparing graduates for tomorrow's STEM careers. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash ptech.